0: Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, the first wealth is health. And you all know the famous saying that you are what you eat. Well, my guest today takes a more nuanced view of things, but she agrees that what you put into your body is foundational to your well-being, and there is no happiness without health. Now, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Rhonda Patrick, a PhD in biomedical science, who has done extensive research on nutrition, aging, stress, stress and cancer. And Rhonda is one of the smartest people I've ever interviewed on these subjects. We covered so much ground in our conversation, and she finds it relatable to explain important science that can change your life. Knowledge is power, and I now feel much more well-equipped to make choices about what I eat and how I live. And in this episode, we talk about the four things you should eat every single day if you want to stay healthy. Why you should watch out for grapes. That's right. Grapes, among many other foods that could prove to be dangerous for you. Which types of exercise improve mental health and combat depression? The potential long-term health dangers of the self-love movement. I thought this was fascinating. And which vitamins you should take every single day, no matter what. Now, I love this interview, and I think you're going to love it as well and be super resourceful for you. So if you find it helpful in any way, remember, pass this along if it's making an impact on you. And if this is your first time here, thank you for spending part of your day with me. And don't forget to click the subscribe button over on Apple and Spotify. And just a quick note, I wanted to mention that we taped this interview a few weeks back yet it still remains as relevant as ever. Okay, without further ado, let me introduce to you the one, the only, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. From now until March 19th, Whole Foods Market is running their sales event, Taste the Mediterranean. It's a store-wide, flavor-packed journey of regionally-inspired selections. Save on Mediterranean-inspired flavors like parmigiano, regano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. Find sales on animal welfare-certified meat. Save on seafood like whole bronzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles and whole wheat pita pockets, wines from the sun-soaked vineyard. Years of Spain, Greece, and Italy. Start at just $8.99. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, so you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store, and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. I've recently joined the world of home ownership, and one thing I've learned is that there's so much more freedom with what I can do with my home, but also so many more decisions to make. Figuring out where to start on big projects like a complete room makeover can be overwhelming. But with Crate & Barrel's free interior design service, a design pro can provide design and styling help for projects big or small. Whether you're redesigning your living room, choosing a new dining room table and chairs, or even just styling a bookshelf. Work one-on-one with a design pro who will work work with existing furnishings, and help you choose new ones. Get 2D layouts and even 3D renderings so you can actually see your space to help you decide. Did I mention it's free? Yes. Having fun exploring the possibilities of what you can redesign or have the design desk help. Go to CrateAndBarrel.com or your local store to make an appointment with the Crate & Barrel Design Desk. Isn't it obnoxious when companies have those sneaky gotchas? The carb fear is real these days, but why does it feel like the carb-heavy foods are what we tend to love the most? After years of wishing there was a better go-to option when the carb craving hits, I finally discovered Hero Bread. Hero Bread makes those same delicious bready favorites free of consequences or compromises. Now get this, Hero Bread has 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and is high in fiber. They've got an option for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, tortillas, and buns. So you can still enjoy that soft, fluffy experience you love when having a refreshing BLT, savory breakfast burrito, or delicious cheeseburger. Hero Bread also does small batch drops each month of indulgent favorites like the two gram Net Carb Hero Croissant or the one gram Net Carb Hero Cheddar Biscuit. Now, Hero Bread looks, feels, and tastes just like any other bread you'd get at the grocery store, which is exactly what I was hoping for. Their white sliced bread is so good, and every time I make a sandwich with it, I can't believe something that tastes this good is actually adding extra protein to my meal. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code GREATNESS at checkout. That's GREATNESS at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Welcome, everyone, back to the School of Greatness podcast. I'm super excited about this. We have Dr. Rondra Patrick in the house, who is a published scientist, health educator, based in San Diego, She's also a PhD in biomedical science, someone who has done extensive research on aging, cancer, nutrition, and so many other things about optimizing your health. So I'm so excited that you're here. Rhonda, thank you for taking the time.
1: Oh, I'm excited to be here, too. I'm glad we finally made this happen. Finally
0: made it happen. I've been begging you to come on for years. We I've just been...
1: needed a pandemic to, to get you <laughs> to go virtual.
0: <laughs> so make it happen. We, you, you, never come, you never leave anywhere from San Diego. You're just obsessed in the research all day, teaching the world about how to be healthier. And um, so we finally made it happen. We'll have to make it happen in person in the future as well. But I, I'm so excited about this because I feel like people need you and your information more than ever right now. Obviously, you've been sharing a ton of great content over on your podcast, and we are in a moment of a lot of high anxiety, a lot of high stress, and routine disruption. You know, my girlfriend who lives with me, she had plans, she had dreams, and those plans and dreams went on hold, just like most of the world. So what does that do to your body and immune system first when you have this routine disruption, anxiety at an all-time high, stress at an all-time high, uncertainty at an all-time high, how do we combat it? And what does that do to our immune system with all of that combined?
1: There, there's a lot of evidence and, a, in fact, a growing body of evidence that psychological stress itself, um, which is what I think you're, you're referring to, I mean, mm-hmm. yes. just the, the, the fear of, of the unknown, not knowing what you know, this, this COVID-19 illness is going to do, whether you're going to catch the virus all those things whether you're going to get your job your job you're going to, you know keep your job or your housing i mean so many stress stresses associated with the, with this pandemic we do know that you know psychological stress has a pretty profound effect on the immune system and um it, it it's known to depress immune function on the one hand but also to cause inflammation on the other hand it's kind of like this weird how is it doing both at the same time sort of deal? And it's funny, often in biology, you'll find a lot of systems like that where on the one hand, something will increase inflammation, but on the other hand, it's suppressing the immune system. And you might think, well, inflammation is active immune system, right? Um, So it's, it's one of those, it's just, there's so many interconnected systems and, you know, one thing is doing, you know, one, one gene can activate one thing and then activate another and happens to be the opposite. So, um, but cortisol itself um, does increase with psychological stress. And we know that um, cortisol does depress the immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, So So anytime
0: we have stress, anxiety, overwhelm, uh, a fight or flight mentality, emotionally, psychologically, it transforms into the body weakening its immune system. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
1: Yes, yes. People are—you're more likely to um, probably succumb to a pathogen, um, and I think anybody. I, I remember I've gotten the flu twice. Like maybe I've had it more. I've, I just remember twice in my life, really. Um, once was during finals week in college, and it was like <laughs> I was taking like all the like hard, you know, I was taking uh, graduate classes and everything at once, and it was like. I had this Spanish final and my Spanish teacher was like, if you miss the final, you're going to get an F and I had an A in the class. So I came to that final that day and I was, I had a fever and I literally vomited like in, in the classroom and no, the, in the middle of the test on the day of the final, I vomited. Like I was like so sick, um,
0: with your so, classmates around you or <laughs> yes. no way you're just like, okay, I'm here. I don't want to fail, I, but I'm going to do whatever it takes.
1: I went right to the trash can and threw up. No way. <laughs> So my teacher sent me home, um, you know, that, that, that was like something I remember that time I had the flu. And the other time I had it was um, right after I had my son, I was getting no sleep. And sleep is also really important for immune function. And so um, I got the flu then. But, anyways, I think my, my, the point of my, my my story was that I think people have their own anecdotes where they're like they remember getting sick when they had this stressful thing happening, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So stress definitely can depress the immune system, yeah, uh, for sure. So that's that's definitely. And then, you know, there there's all sorts of other things that affect immune function as well: diet, yeah. you know, lifestyle, <laughs> genetics. Uh, do you think like there's?
0: That. Do you think there's a way to defend ourselves against all disease and viruses do you think it's possible if we have the purest mind and psychological well-being we eat the perfect foods we have nine hours of sleep every night we have the perfect environment is it possible to just the immune system say nope anything that comes in through the, the body or the skin like um, we're just going to reject it because we have defended ourselves so well
1: I think the only way you're going to do that is if you never expose yourself to a pathogen somehow by living in a bubble. So no, I don't think that um, that you can you know, fight off every single pathogen ever. Uh, you know, like that's that's just it's not it's not possible. And yeah. that mostly has to do with you know when when you're exposed to new pathogens, things that your body has never seen before. Um, that. You know, there's no, there's 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 really two arms to your immune system. There's the innate immune response, which is what happens when you encounter any pathogen. It's sort of this generalized response where you're basically, you know, trying to trying to fight it off, and that happens um, through a variety of mechanisms involving mostly what are called myeloid cells, macrophages, neutrophils. These are cells that are um, like neutrophils, for example, increase, uh, produce hydrogen peroxide. They produce hyperchlorite, which is like bleach. You know, they're producing these things inside of your, inside of your body to, to fight off pathogens.
0: They create you have your body produces bleach or bleach like material
1: hypochlorite Hypercri- hy- it does yeah hydrogen peroxide as well so
0: so is this your immune system <laughs> develops this or is this like your cells is this blo- what is your this?
1: neutrophils are, are producing it it's a type what's of what's a immune neutrophil cell. it's a type of immune cell okay There are various types of immune cells you have myeloid cells and you have lymphoid cells most people are familiar with lymphoid cells which are b and t cells you've probably heard of those yes. right and that those also could be involved somewhat in the uh, adaptive immune response, uh, sorry, in the innate, but mostly they're involved in what's called the adaptive immune response. And that's the immune response most people are aware of that don't you know study biology. That's the response where your B cells basically form what are called like B memory cells, and they may produce antibodies, which can then recognize specific regions of a virus and you know, protect you from that, from that virus, protect you from the virus entering your cells. You know, if you don't have, but if you've never been exposed to that virus, then you're not going to have that antibody, right? You're not going to have that adaptive immune system hasn't been activated. And so you don't have protection against it. So we rely on the innate one only.
0: Oh, so we actually want to be exposed to viruses and other bad, I guess, bugs. We want to be exposed to some degree, but not full on attack so that our body can build up antibodies. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
1: Yeah, I think that's an accurate statement. I think, you know, that, that it was thought for a long time that, you know, all pathogens were bad, all microbes were bad, and we wanted to have, you know, this clean hygiene, you know, we wanted to- All the time. All the time. Never
0: touch anything with your hands. Make exactly. sure you cover everything all the time, yeah.
1: And now this is how science is. The more tools you have, the more you can investigate questions and learn more answers from, from doing experiments. So um, as time goes on, sort of, your ideas change and knowledge changes, right? And that's, that's science. Science is the changing of it. So you know we know that microbes now, we've got the microbiome, we've got the skin microbiome, the gut microbiome, you know the, the, the bacteria that are on our skin, the bacteria that are in our gut um, also have important roles in helping us um, and helping our immune system, in fact. In fact, actually, there's been many studies showing now that um, early life exposure to dirt, you know, or even like pet dander, you know, growing up with oh. like a dog can help protect against asthma and even other types really? of autoimmune res- yeah, autoimmune diseases. And it's really important in the first year of life. Like when my son was born, I was like taking him out in the dirt, you know, I was <laughs> trying to get him all dirty. Instead of years ago, you know, my grandparents' generation, it was like, oh, you never want to go in the dirt because it's dirty and you can get sick. And, you know, obviously we've learned a lot more since then. But even gut microbiome, the gut, like the composition of what's in your gut plays a major role in actually regulating your immune cells and particularly. So what happens is, you know bacteria in our gut will, will ferment certain types of fermentable carbohydrates that we eat. So these are carbohydrates that we don't digest, uh, and they, they tend to be in plants and fruit. There's many examples of it, like you can find pectin or inulin or beta-glucans. You know there's lots of different types that are found in a variety of, of plants, and these bacteria will ferment basically these types of fiber, and they will produce a variety of different compounds, almost like little drug factories in our gut. And these compounds, some some of them are called short chain fatty acids because they're little tiny fatty acids. They get released into the bloodstream and they regulate, they basically send signals. It's like this signaling molecule that tells our T cells to make more of this type. Mm. And one of the types of T cells it makes is a type called regulatory T cells. And regulatory T cells play a very important role in preventing your immune system from attacking its own tissue, thinking its own tissue is foreign. So, obviously, it plays a very important role in autoimmune disease. So, so how do we get
0: more of these T-cells that are good?
1: One thing to keep in mind would be what what regulates the gut microbiome. You know, one of the major things that regulates the gut microbiome is what I just said, eating a, a diverse ar- array of fermentable fiber. Because Give me an
0: example. What's, what's a diverse array?
1: So, you have blueberries. You have, um, you know, you have nuts, mushrooms. Mm-hmm. You have some... You know, dark leafy greens. These have different types of, or you know, you've got onions and garlic. Those have a different type of fermentable fiber. There's that should be differentiated from um, non-fermentable fiber. Which would be cellulose wow. ligands. well, just like well broccoli has fermentable fibers and, uh-huh. and but yeah, most of the the bulk of fiber in plants is non is, is non fermentable, so what that's doing is basically just helping move stuff through the intestines right pushing mm-hmm. it out the fiber that's important
0: the fiber's and, pulling it down and cleaning it out cleaning and-
1: it out right and that's also important but but the fermentable fiber, the stuff that's that can be eaten by this bacteria in our gut like that is the good stuff that's really? what's allowing the bacteria to make short chain fatty acids
0: what are the top three to five key foods i'm <laughs> trying to simplify for myself these foods well, that can really develop that yeah what are the what would there's you, what you
1: different eat? so the thing is different foods have different types and different oh. types feed different types of bacteria so if you want you don't know, like for what for example some people want to hear oh well i can supplement with inulin. I can get an, an inulin powder. Inulin is a type of fermentable fiber. You can find it. Um, you can find it in a variety of plants. Uh, I think onions, for example. But if you only eat inulin, you're going to be basically feeding certain types of bacteria that, that use inulin
0: or dig- so that You know that. So ferment. it's the variety is what you're looking for. That
1: helps with the diversity. You know because these bacteria are playing different roles. Uh, so interesting. You know, so there's.
0: I have been under the assumption that eating the same thing every day is good. It's like eating a clean, like a little bit of chicken, lots of veggies and eating it pretty much every meal is the right way to go in terms of like my health, nutrients, in terms of like body composition, how I want to look and feel. Is that something that I should be uh, going away from and diversifying what I eat every day? Well, it
1: sounds like you just said vegetables and vegetables. There's a lot of types of vegetables, right? Uh So it's kind of nice. I'm just as guilty, like, for convenience, I'm busy. I know my, my husband gets tired of it, but I'm like the same. It's so much easier to have the same thing. Same thing every day. Meals because I, I find the thing that's healthiest and easiest to make. And, you know, there's days where, let's say, you know, I'm not, I'm not working all day, then I can, I can be more creative and I have more time. Generally speaking, it's easier to, to kind of stick to the same thing. But if it's nice. You,
0: if you were going to, let's say you came up with a, a new company a product that was a a meal, that you had to have the same meal every day for lunch and dinner and snack, and this would be the, the thing that you could sell to people. What would be included in that meal that you were like, you know what? If you ha- if you don't have the all the variety and time to make these foods all day, but if you could do this three times a day, you're setting yourself up for a really good immune system
1: and good gut bacteria. The same act- the same meal three times a day, or yes, different same meals? Yeah. meal. So I would say oh, basically no. omega. I would I would get salmon. I would get wild Alaskan salmon, and and that's because salmon is one of the best sources of the marine omega three fatty acids EPA and DHA, which are extremely important. For health, and particularly brain health, but even cardiovascular health. I mean, just there's just been so much emerging evidence showing that the omega-3 fatty acids are really important for brain health and for. Okay. Uh, for cardiovascular health, piece of so wild caught pro- salmon. That would be yep. my protein, mm-hmm. um, and it's also lowest in mercury. There's there's like two micrograms of mercury per four ounces cooked. So that's really low in mm. mercury. And, I would and definitely cook,
0: cooked or raw fish.
1: Well, actually, cooking it even lowers the merc- mercury bioavailability even more. So definitely, and raw, you don't want to like. I think there's too much concern with parasites and all yeah, that. So yeah. I would say cook. cooking
0: me. Okay, number <laughs> and, two.
1: Number two, I would say, I always feel like I'm depriving myself, and I'm kind of quoting my mentor here a little bit, if I don't have dark leafy greens with a meal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Literally, like every meal, I like to have dark leafy greens. And I would say kale, greens. because I would also like to have my sulforaphane. And sulforaphane, so much evidence that sulforaphane, I think, uh, may be important for longevity. So that would be my greens. Kale. And the, okay. yeah, I I'd like maybe sauteed sauteed would be good because it's okay. just you can't really eat raw kale unless
0: you put so it in a smoothie
1: which which i actually do i drink my smoothie i have um blueberries so maybe i would add the avocado and some blueberries a little a little cup of blueberries
0: and that's it for your meal
1: yeah that would be my that would be my so you meal. would have
0: wild alaskan salmon dark leafy greens sa- sauteed kale uh you'd have blueberries and some avocado and an avocado if you ate those four things every day, multiple times a day, <laughs> that, if that's what you could only eat, you feel like it would set you up for good amount of success? I do.
1: I do. Interesting.
0: Yes. Hey, friends. Lewis Howes here, and you know how much I love to learn. That's why I started the School of Greatness, so I could learn from the most successful minds in business, health, sports, and entertainment. And my sponsor today, Masterclass, shares that same vision. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can study comedy with Steve Martin, effective communication with Robin Roberts, or entrepreneurship with Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of Spanx and one of my favorite podcast guests ever. You can even polish your guitar skills with Carlos Santana or hit the tennis court with Serena Williams. There are over 75 different instructors across tons of categories, literally something for everyone. And I myself took the art of negotiation from former FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, who taught me invaluable skills that have already started to pay off as I work to grow both this podcast and my business. And you can access Masterclass on an app or your phone, web, or Apple TV, and I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass You know what feels good? Winning. And not just in sports. Like when your coffee's still warm once you reach your job site. Or when you finish a project days before the deadline and coming in under budget. That's claiming victory. You can even claim victory on your taxes by losing your current tax preparer and switching to H&R Block. And once you do, you'll start to feel like a tax champion. Because at Block, you'll have many ways to get your taxes done. You can walk in, make an appointment, or drop off your documents at a time that's convenient for you. You'll get 100 accuracy on your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their upfront transparent pricing, you'll know the price of your tax prep before you even get started. So make room on that trophy shelf and prepare to tax like a champion this tax season at H&R Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. Disclaimer, all tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. You can't always trust your gut, like those times when it tells you to have that extra piece of cake or when it tells you to skip your morning routine and sleep in another hour. Probiotics can't help with most of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. They made a 3-in-1 supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Ritual invested in a study modeling the human colon which showed their symbiotic plus significantly increased microbial diversity. and the growth of beneficial bacteria. Rigorously tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project-verified, gluten- and major allergen-free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. Personally, I love Ritual's Symbiotic Plus because it keeps my gut feeling balanced and it's super convenient. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at Ritual.com com slash greatness start ritual or add symbiotic plus to your subscription today that's ritual.com slash greatness for twenty percent off and as a school of greatness listener you get fifteen percent off the annual all access pass just go to masterclass.com slash greatness right now again that's masterclass.com slash greatness for fifteen percent off masterclass
1: well there's a lot of so in kale um, kale is probably one of the best sources of lutein and zeaxanthin, which are what are called carotenoids. And carotenoids, you're probably familiar with, or you're, and people listening or watching this are probably familiar with beta-carotene. That's like the probably most famous. That's like the poster child for carotenoids. Um, beta-carotene is a carotenoid. Uh, it has antioxidant activity itself, but it also can be converted into vitamin A. Uh, lutein and zeaxanthin are really interesting because they accumulate in two regions, in the rods and cones in the eye, and they're, they've been shown to play an important role in preventing age-related macular degeneration, mm. but they've also really been shown to play an important role in the brain, and there's this accumulating evidence that this stuff is accumulating in the brain. And it really hasn't been known why, and, and the reason I say that is because lutein and zeaxanthin, because of their molecular structure, they're really good at basically sequestering singlet oxygen, and and that plays a role in like damaging the eyes, so like when yeah. you're out in, in the sun, exposed to the sun, and you know cataracts and things like that. Yeah. So that that plays a role, and you're basically eye eye aging, quote unquote, right? But in the brain, there's no light, so why is this stuff accumulating in the brain? There's just been Quite a few studies over the past five years or so, maybe last seven years, correlating it with cognitive function and um, improved cognitive function and delayed brain aging. I, and and there's like studies, you know, correlating plasma levels of lutein and zeaxanthin with improved cognitive function. There's been. Uh, randomized controlled trials supplementing with lutein and zeaxanthin improving cognitive function in elderly adults. It's always nice to have a randomized controlled trial because that really helps establish causation. When you have these studies looking at associations, at the end of the day, it's an association and you never know, it could be Mm -hmm. some other factor, right? Playing a role. So the lutein and zeaxanthin and kale, you've got some fiber, a little bit of fermentable fiber. You've got the sulforaphane, which um, has been shown to increased it's been shown in, in in human studies to increase glutathione in plasma and also in the brain, mm. which is amazing. Glutathione is one of the major antioxidant systems in the body, and particularly in the brain. And I know we were kind of chatting before before we got started uh, about your former life as a what I didn't realize even existed was this which arena football you called yes. it. And it sounds like that TBI could be a, a big thing
0: uh, yeah. in, in a lot football. Of, a lot of hits in the head, that's for sure.
1: Right. Well, glutathione is one of the major antioxidants in the brain. It plays a very important role, um, particularly with any injury in the brain. Mm. So um, sulforaphane increases glutathione. It increases the the enzymes that make glutathione and use it and subsequently increases glutathione levels.
0: I saw some, maybe it was another doctor, I'm trying to figure out who said this, that there was some research actually potentially saying that kale was not good for you, that it had some negative side effects as well. I don't know if you've seen that research or if that's just something- There's no
1: research I've seen on that. I've heard it. It's just, it's one of those things where people like to talk about potential anti-nutrients and one of the- what they're calling an anti-nutrient is actually sulforaphane because it can compete with iodine for transport into the thyroid. There's been studies, so for human studies where they've loaded up with sulforaphane and there's been no effect on thyroid function. Those were short-term, like a week-long studies. There have been long-term studies on animals that actually have hypothyroidism. They were given sulforaphane, and believe it or not, actually, they were given broccoli sprouts extract, which is one of the best... I hear those are amazing for you. Yes. So broccoli sprouts have like 100 times more sulforaphane than mature broccoli. Well, anyway, my point was... So should we throw some broccoli
0: sprouts on top of the kale or or the avocado? The
1: broccoli sprouts actually... Would if I could add more, I would absolutely put the broccoli sprouts in there, yes. But the, the my point was that the animals that had hypothyroidism it didn't make their hypothyroidism any worse at all. In fact, it helped uh, the antioxidant status of their thyroid and improved some functions. Wow. So I think it, that doesn't mean you know people with hypothyroidism shouldn't be you know weary or concerned about consuming too much sulforaphane, particularly if they're not getting iodine. Most people. Aren't iodine deficient? It's it's like in salt. You know, most people are eating foods that already have salt in them. Now, um, you know, iodine so iodine deficiency not is not a big thing, um, particularly in the United States. But uh, so I would I would say that 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 uh, those statements by some people that are kind mm-hmm. of more into the the camp of don't eat any plants right? Um, aren't, aren't really not enough research on it. Yeah, there's not, there may be, you might find one study with one case report with a female who had some crazy f- disease or something and mm-hmm. she was juicing like just ungodly amounts of kale every day where it's like, I mean, okay, like maybe there, maybe you can create a situation sure, sure, where, sure. you know, it, there's it not enough research harmful.
0: backing it though. Yeah. But yeah. So I'm curious about this. You have some great points here. I love your five foods that we should be eating for every meal. Now, as a, I'm a 37 year old man, but I've got the, I like to think curiosity and imagination of a seven year old. But I also have the palate of a seven year old, and I don't like blueberries. I don't, I don't like avocado. I'm the pickiest eater. I'm probably a pickier eater than your, than your child. And I want to ask you for the picky eaters of the world, who don't eat berries and don't like avocado or aren't creative enough to go that far and they're limited in their creative thinking in terms of foods, is it better to just have the supplementation, the vitamins and supplements that are the exact same nutrients and just take the supplements and vitamins as opposed to the actual food itself? Or is the organic, fresh-caught food always better than the, the fish oil or the blueberry vitamin? What do you think about
1: that? Yeah. So um, I think that there's huge differences when you're talking about eating a food uh, versus taking a supplement. And I do think, for example, a multivitamin supplement is, is, I take it every day and I think it's great insurance to make sure because, you know, there are 40 essential micronutrients, which are vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids and amino acids we have to get from our diet. Um, And they're important for not only helping us, you know, not die, for example, you know, scurvy, but also for long-term function, for the way we age. Um, pre- mm. preventing insidious damage. But there's also a variety of these compounds we don't know about. You know, there's the fermentable fibers that are feeding the gut microbiome and which are making all these chemicals like little drug factories in our gut that are regulating the immune system. We've got polyphenols like blueberries have been shown, you know, to inc- in multiple clinical studies, it's been shown to increase blood flow to the brain and improve cognitive function and memory in both young adolescents and older adults. Mm. Uh, so, and this was, this was due... Thought to be due to the anthocyanins and blueberries and you know food has so many components probably so many things we haven't even discovered yet you know so many compounds that were just you know there's this new new compound that was discovered in dark leafy greens called um sulfa or something which is now been shown to like have a specific purpose of feeding the gut microbiome, kind of like the fermentable fiber. So it's one of those things where, you, you know, food has so much to it, and there's so, many, there's so many parts to the story. It's not just about getting the vitamin, right? It's not just about getting that one mineral. Um, so, um, and I will say that uh, in my, when I was a postdoc with Dr. Bruce Ames at the Children's Hospital uh, Oakland Research Institute, there was a, a variety of clinical studies that I was a part of where they, my colleagues had designed this this nutrient-dense bar that had a variety of vitamins and minerals. It also had DHA, which is one of the marine omega three fatty acids found in mm-hmm. fish, and it also had fiber, a fiber matrix. And there was a variety of studies that we were doing in obese and lean individuals. And, so it was and like it showed, the
0: ultimate food bar. It was, it was like, like everything you need in this. It was meal. like the
1: you know it was like the micronutrient bar where you were giving the micronutrients, but you were delivering them with a, with a food matrix, Ooh. like fiber, right? Yes. And there's all these benefits that were found from this, from this bar that were particularly benefits found in people that were overweight or obese, that we didn't ask them to change their diet, they were eating their same diet, but you give them this bar on top of that. And you would have improvements. You would have improvements. Hmm. And in inflammation in like, you know, um, HDL, cholesterol, which is a good type of cholesterol. Um, you, so you'd have all these improvements. But if you took away that food matrix and just had the bar without the fiber and just the, the micronutrients, some of those benefits would go away. And, so the, but if you made matrix- the fiber by itself, the benefits would go away. It was mm. the whole package. It was everything together that was important. So, you know, wow. with that said... Um, I do think there is a place for supplementation and particularly with fish oil. Uh, I think fish oil is is one of those supplements that I, every day I take it. And I think that there's just mounting evidence that it's beneficial. I mean, high dose, it has to be in the right dose for some people. And it's, I mean, it's been shown to really lower triglycerides, for example. Mm. But again, there's conflicting studies. And a lot of times when you look at these clinical trials, it all has to do with dose, it has to do with were they taking a statin, mm-hmm. for example, which can sort of mask some of the benefits, you know, there's all sorts of Gosh. things that are so complicated. complications, it complicates everything. And then you get all this data. And you're like, wait a minute, but yesterday was not good for you today. It is I good know, for you,
0: right? Yeah. How are you supposed to know when there's so much information out there about medical news about health news, nutrition news, supplement news? How do you know what to trust when there's just so much news out there about what's working and what's not working?
1: I mean, it's hard to know. <laughs> it's, it's, hard for, I have to, it's hard for me to kind of sort through it. You know, then you add the list, this layer of genetics that's also complicating, particularly with the randomized controlled trials. Like there's genes that people um, have where they actually need a higher dose of fish oil to have benefits, which is mm. super interesting. There's also genes where people that get omega-3 from the plant source because there's a plant form, alpha-linic acid, ALA, that um, for chia seeds or flax seeds or walnuts, they don't convert that ALA into the EPA and DHA very well. And those EPA and DHA are ultimately what are regulating everything that's important for health. So again, you know, you have the genetics that comes into, and this is also the case for, for studies on saturated fat, you know, the genetics plays a role in that as well. So there's all sorts of, there's so many factors when, when, when designing a clinical trial and, I think I think the burden is on the researchers. The researchers have to come to a consensus. Right. And and realize but look, then
0: but then a decade later they may come to a new consensus with new research where it's like <laughs> yeah. we we thought I don't know leafy greens were healthy but now it's actually killing you, right? It's like I don't not that it's going to happen but I'm just saying it seems like over decades what scientists and researchers think sometimes is accurate we find later evidence that it may not be 100% true.
1: That that is true. That is true. But I think when you have overwhelming evidence in, mo- in multiple fields and multiple areas, so you have the epidemiological evidence, you have the associative studies, you have the randomized controlled trials, where they you know you start and you give someone something and then you measure an endpoint. The, the and then double placebo
0: have, testing, everything. right?
1: And then you have the mechanistic studies where you start to look at how it's happening and you do these animal studies, you know, that together combined, the, the, whole, mm-hmm. the whole, you know, comprehensive literature, I, I would say, is, is what really strengthens.
0: Yeah. The matrix of studies.
1: When every, whole- right. When everything starts to come and point <laughs> to that direction.
0: I, I have so many questions. This, this one just came to my mind really quick as I, you know, I live in Los Angeles, I'm from Ohio, so being from Ohio, you grow up eating meat and cheese and milk. I remember I lived in a uh, a dorm. I went to In eighth grade, I went to a, a private school, boarding school, and I lived in a dorm with a bunch of other kids in middle school, and I actually had a milk dispenser, a five-gallon whole milk dispenser, and I would drink that every three days by myself, five gallons within three days, because I thought milk was good. You're supposed to drink it all day long. So, you know you drink it before sleep everything i have a question about being in la now growing up in ohio which is all about meat and potatoes now being in la it's all about being vegan and everything <laughs> is around everything is around either keto or veganism or paleo or vegan it's like you're you're good you're bad you're right you're wrong there's documentaries that are coming out all the time about veganism all that stuff if you had to calculate with your wealth of information and knowledge Who would be healthier, the person who is vegan eating the best foods all day or the meat eater eating the best, healthiest foods all day? Who do you think would have a a healthier- The meat
1: meat eater also would be including eating vegetables Including plants and vegetables as well. But They're an omnivore.
0: Yes, they're eating meat, but they're also eating all the other good foods or someone who's eating all the other good foods excluding meat.
1: So, Veganism taking all the process, or, so taking out all the processed foods in both camps, right? Both camps, no whole unheal- foods, whole foods
0: eating- healthy. One is having meat every day, a portion of meat, and one is not having meat. Who is a healthier, happier human being that lives longer?
1: Well, I can tell you I don't know, um, but we can talk about what the evidence has shown. And I think probably the, the strongest evidence to date Most of this evidence is unfortunately epidemiological because you're never going to get a randomized control trial that's 50 years long. You know, I mean, you're just, you're not going to, that's not going to happen. It's too too expensive and people won't follow the same diet for that long, right? So you won't won't ever have a longevity study. That's a randomized control trial. But looking at the epidemiological studies, um, for a long time, you'd have study after study coming out. Showing, oh, eating vegetarians have a lower what's called all cause mortality than non vegetarians or than an, people that eat animal meat. All cause mortality means basically dying from all types of diseases that are non accidental.
0: Diabetes, right? cancer, type two diabetes, obesity. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. Um, heart disease. So, um, so vegetarians die lots less. Lots of studies. St- lots of studies have shown that. But huh. with the pro- the problem with epidemiological studies is there's what are called confounding factors. So you have people that are also obese. You have people that are sedentary. You have people that exercise. You have people that smoke. You have, you know, so what about all those other things? How do those come into play, right? interesting. And so there have now been um, studies, large, large studies that have looked at confounding factors and have found, yes, vegetarians do have lower all-cause mortality, particularly cancer-related mortality than people who eat meat. But when you take all the unhealthy lifestyle factors away, so people that are not obese, don't smoke, that are physically active, and that don't consume excessive alcohol, if they eat meat, they have the same mortality rate as a vegetarian. Mm. But if you take the meat eater and you add one of those in, like obesity, then they are going to have a higher, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, a higher mortality rate than the vegetarian. So basically. I think there's lots of reasons. I think, for one, um, we know that meat has a different amino acid profile, and part of that amino acid profile can activate a a hormone, a a, a very important hormone, but it's got sort of, it's like a double-edged sword hormone. It's called IGF-1, insulin growth factor like one. And this hormone is an, an important hormone. Like, during development, it helps you grow. I mean, it's needed to grow. People that have genetic um you know polymorphisms in in genes that affect that pathway and have less of it have stunted growth so it's important for growth it's important for muscle repair like you want to you want igf1 in your muscles to Mm -hmm. help repair muscles after you know after you after you injure them or after you exercise right that's the type of injury you're but can't you
0: get that from supplementation from protein or supplements as well well
1: so this is the this is the bottom line is that the igf1 um which is activated by, uh, essential amino acids. You know, you've got like leucine, for example, methionine, these things, it also is important for in the brain for growing new neurons. I'm just telling you the importance of it because the problem with IGF-1 is that as we age and we accumulate damage within our cells, um, and we, and this happens to everyone, um, and you have a cell that, let's say a cell gets enough damage, it has a mutation that could potentially become a cancer-causing mutation. The IGF-1 that's around, which which is around a lot more in meat eaters, Mm. um, it allows a damaged cell to overcome signals in our body that will usually kill it and say, oh, this has got damage. If we don't kill it, it could become cancer. IGF-1 goes, no, 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 grow. Keep, Mm. Keep growing. And so igf It's IGF-1. a growth hormone.
0: It's a growth hormone or stimulus. Exactly
1: what it is. Yeah. Um. And and in fact. You huh. know, So it's gonna grow
0: any cancer or any disease. It's in gonna the body. allow
1: things to grow more. Yeah. So that's that's kind of part of the problem. Is that and if why if you know, someone is obese or you're a smoker or you know doing things that are you know excess excess um causing excess damage? Then that could put you at risk, right?
0: Because I've heard stories uh and seen cases of people that were eating meat got some type of cancer, whether it be early form cancer or some stage of cancer, went complete vegetarian vegan, and it stopped growing. I've heard stories of that. I don't know if that's 100% accurate or if there's other factors that played into that. Uh, Without chemo, without those types of things, uh, is that possible?
1: Well, I've I've certainly heard anecdotal stories of that as well. And there's been animal studies showing that. And when you take an animal and let's say you inject it with a human cancer cell to form a tumor, Mm. Um, and then you give that animal a high protein, high protein versus low protein diet, then the low protein diet, you know, blunts the cancer growth, mm. whereas the high one, but that doesn't mean that eating meat causes cancer. Gotcha. It doesn't mean that it means that if you already have cancer, it's
0: going to accelerate it potentially. It
1: can Potentially. Yeah. I, you know, I think that the, 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 the key here also is exercise exercise, um, you know, helps Take that IGF 1 and move it into the brain and move it into muscle cells where it's doing good stuff. You want IGF 1 in your brain. IGF 1 is important to grow new neurons, which, I mean, as we age, you know, neurodegenerative disease is a big risk. And you wanna, you wanna, you know, grow new neurons in old age. Um, It also allows existing neurons to survive. So exercise increases IGF 1 in the brain. Uh, It also helps increase it in muscle tissue as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why. You look at the meat eaters and the ones that are physically active, not obese. Basically, if you don't have these unhealthy lifestyle factors, then it, it, I think that eating meat is healthy. And and honestly, I think that a vegetarian, you really like you have to do a lot of work to make sure that you're getting all the right nutrients. There's, there's risk factors for deficiencies in zinc,
0: hmm. um,
1: which is found in, you know, in meat products, uh, risk factors for deficiencies in, uh, obviously B12, um, and other things, you know, just making sure you're getting the right profile. So you mm-hmm. definitely want to make sure you're, and I don't know what all the combinations are, you know, like you have to sure, sure. The, bean lawn, the beans and the this right,
0: right, right, the proteins. You know? What would be if you were a meat eater, but you said, you know what, I want to cut out certain types of meat. I want to be a more conscious meat eater, if that's a a thing. Um, And I want to be a healthier meat eater. And I only want to choose like one to three different types of meat. We've got wild Alaskan caught salmon as one piece of meat. What would be the other two that you would add if these were the only meats you're going to eat because you would try to minimize your consumption of meat? What would be the other two types of meat that you think would be beneficial for your health and Brain memory and well i would
1: stuff. I would say um, based on interesting studies that have been done looking at what is called epigenetic age, um, epigenetic age is probably one of the i would say it's the, the fastest growing uh, biomarkers for what 's called biological age uh, and yeah, yeah. versus chronological age so people can be biologically younger or biologically older than their chronological
0: age. Right. I'm 37, but I could be 17, right? Like (laughs) my my internal health. I
1: would say genetics would probably play a bigger role in that (laughs) than than lifestyle. I don't think diet and lifestyle will put you back that far, but yes.
0: Think of all the amazing things in life that are expressions of just you. For instance, the song you stream over and over again while you're in your 13th hour of gaming at 4 a.m. in the morning with all the lights off trying not to wake up your roommates, or the recommendations that you share with your friends on the top six comedy podcasts that are the best to listen to on your way to the gym and back, or even your new haircut, which may or may not be an epic bowl cut from the 90s and hopefully is. Everything that makes you, you, makes all the difference. State Farm believes insurance should... work the same way. Your plan, your coverage selections can be personalized by you. And the ability to choose the plan that you want by picking the options that fit you, like choosing to bundle your home and auto policies, is what the State Farm Personal Price Plan is all about. Getting the coverage you want at an affordable price just for you. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Or I could yeah. look like I'm forty-five or fifty-five if I was smoking all day, drinking all day, eating right. everything crap. Obese, like, yeah, not exactly. you know,
1: sedentary. There's there's lots of there's lots of lifestyle factors that mm-hmm. can make you have an older biological age. Yeah. And those are the things we just mentioned: obesity, okay. sedentary, smoking, excess alcohol consumption. But there's also been studies looking at dietary patterns and their, you know, um, supplement intake as well. And what epigenetic age is, is basically it looks at um, what are called methylation patterns. Methylation is like a, basically a carbon with three hydrogen atoms. And they're, what they're doing is they're basically sitting on top of your DNA and changing the way genes are turned on and turned off. And what's really interesting is that this methylation pattern, um, this work has been done, was really pioneered by Dr. Steve Horbath at uh, UCLA. And... Um, he, he basically showed that he could look at these, he could take some DNA and look at the methylation pattern, and with like 96% accuracy, he could predict your age plus or minus wow. four years. Like it's super accurate. And then he's developed a bunch of other clocks, these epigenetic aging clocks, that can be more accurately predict biological age. And so um, what he's found is that um, there's an association with lower biological epigenetic age when you're eating uh, fish. Or poultry, hmm. which I found very interesting. I, I know this was a very long-winded answer birds, to your
0: question. So birds and fish.
1: And based huh. on that, kind of for a while, I was like, "Well, what's the real benefit of poultry? I might, you know, I why not get more red meat and have more iron?" And you know, so um, so hmm. the, that 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 study kind of made me think about it, and I'm like, "Oh, well, that's because red meat wasn't associated with the." With a lower epigenetic age. So I thought that was really interesting. And so that. Uh, so would you, say,
0: would you say eating red meat is making us older?
1: No, I don't think there's evidence of that. Okay. I, do, I, I will say that the red meat studies are extremely nuanced because mm. lots of times stuff is glumped together with processed meat, mm-hmm. like, you know. The, the, the lunch meats and the bacon and the yeah. sausage. And the processed meat, there's a layer of complication on that. And that is that it has nitrites in it. Nitrites are preservatives. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that they can also form nitrosamines in the body, which are potential carcinogens. They can cause DNA damage and, and do all sorts of terrible things. So a lot of red meat studies are really, um, there's a lot of nuance there with, with that. And in fact, and with a lot of the red meat studies, there's been a lot of studies looking at red meat consumption and type two diabetes risk. And it's mm. weird because there's an increased risk with red meat consumption, study after study after. So once in a while, I'll get like a vegan that'll throw me a question and they'll send me some links. And I'm like, wow, there's something to this. Like, I didn't realize that, you know, so I'll look into it. And, um, and this is, you know, how you kind of learn things from really good questions and from people that send you links to studies. Sure. Um, And so my team and I were looking into this and we finally, after reading just, you know, dozens of studies, there was one consistent theme within all the studies showing that red meat consumption increases type 2 diabetes risk. And that was BMI. It only did it in people with a high BMI for the most part. Body mass index,
0: is that BMI?
1: And BMI is not a great, I mean, like someone that has a lot of muscle can be categorized as high BMI. So it's not a great, it's not a great indicator, but- Generally speaking, if you're obese, you've got a higher BMI. So that was that was the interesting interesting thing. Again, so
0: let's uh, with the, I mean let's so poultry and fish would be the things that are the best meats to eat from based on what I'm hearing you say from your mentor and from the research so far what we have.
1: I would I would say yeah. I mean so if, far if you're only picking I,
0: two meats. It's fish <laughs> and, and poultry, right?
1: I, don't, I I hate to say it. I don't, you know, I don't really know, but right. I found those studies interesting.
0: Okay. And I would say, I
1: would say that I don't. I still am not convinced that red meat is bad, gotcha. unless you're obese or you you're, you're you overweight and you're eating red meat, and you, you got to work on losing. You work on the losing weight.
0: How old is your child right now?
1: Two and a half. Two and a half. Yes.
0: As a mom and a scientist and researcher. What are the healthy foods out there that people in the, the mass population think as healthy that you will never want your uh, child to eat?
1: Oh, I think there's all sorts of processed toddler foods you'll find out there. And um, I've experimented with a couple on myself. I wear a continuous glucose monitor just to see how um, I, my body responds to various foods in terms of increasing blood glucose levels. So it's called postprandial blood glucose and I'm also uh-huh. interested in my fasting blood glucose levels or how different lifestyle factors affect that. And I should mention this, that basically we were talking all about these studies with eating meat and vegetarians and, you know, there's also a huge layer of complication with genetics, believe it or not. Yeah. There are genes that people have that eating a high-protein diet makes them actually gain weight and have Mm. poor lipids, and there are genes that people have that eating a high-protein diet makes them lose weight, the complete opposite. So you need to know your
0: your genetics first, really, before the diet you eat.
1: The genetics may tell you the why of some of the conflicting research, Mm -hmm. and this goes for fats as well. There are genes, people that eat saturated fat, they can have an increased glucose response, versus um, most, of, most of the time, what increases your postprandial glucose response is actually carbohydrates, particularly mm-hmm. refined carbohydrates. But, but there, are in, there are situations that, that that's not true. There was this beautiful study published back in 2015 in the, in, this, in the Journal of Cell Metabolism. It was done at the Weissman Institute in Israel. And I love this study because they put continuous glucose monitors, like I'm wearing now, on 800 people and Is this something they, like
0: in your stomach and your arm, like in your right body? on my
1: abdomen, right here? It's like inside a little inside the skin. It, so it's like a little micro needle. It's like tiny little micro needle uh, that goes through. Yeah, but you it doesn't such a it's baby. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, it's like it doesn't hurt at all. Okay, um, so it's on it, you 24/7. It is, yeah. Most of the time, I wear. It. I mean, it, it expires every ten days, and I have to uh-huh. like replace it. And sometimes I take a couple of days off, and sure, sure. You know, but yes, I'm wearing. I I've learned. We can talk about. It. I've learned a ton of things from that. But I was getting to a point.
0: The wise, the wise man. Sorry, I'm. Not, the wise I'm, man. Yes 800, you, yes,
1: 800 people wearing this continuous glucose monitor. They gave these people a variety of different types of foods. You know, they gave them high fat. They gave them high refined carbohydrate, like white bread, they gave them complex carbohydrate like a banana, and measured their <laughs> glucose response to a variety of foods and What was so enlightening and illuminating about this study was that everyone had different responses Ugh. to these foods and it was they also then did genetic testing on these people and they measured microbiome and also physical activity and It turns out. All those things play a role in their blood glucose response. Their genetics, their microbiome composition, how much they exercise—I think—and then sleep also. But that wasn't part of the study. That's that's another. Those are other studies. But the point is that you know we're sitting here talking about people's response to, for example, red meat. I think that as moving forward, this field of this interaction between genes and diet, is called nutrigenomics. I think that field is growing and more clinical studies will start to include it. The problem is it's more expensive. Anytime you have to add another clinical test, particularly if it involves getting a sample of DNA, although these days now you can get them from saliva and so it shouldn't be as difficult, but, but again, it's just another layer of,
0: you know. Yeah. So what would the healthy foods be that you would never want your kid to eat?
1: Right. Exactly. So that's what I was getting to. There's these, there's these foods that are organic almond butter, little snacks and all this. And so I was trying this stuff and it, I mean, just tiny little thing raised my blood glucose levels, like just unbelievably high. Like as if i had eaten like two meals no way you know and so yeah it was insane some of these stuff that just has some added a little bit of added sugar or Mm -hmm. a little you know so it's just really I would stay away from all those foods that are packaged you know the the, I see like children eating these squeezy foods and stuff and Mm -hmm. I've never I've never given my son that I know that it's a lot of work making food of course definitely a lot of work and but there's new there's like companies out there now that'll like give you know send you like already like made great organic, real food. Exactly. Um, so there's, 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 there's what are, ways to help. What, but- what, are,
0: what are like five foods that you think are hurting us on a daily basis, like in terms of just like sugar, bread, rice? Like what would you say are the fives that we should never be eating unless
1: – I would say – I mean I don't know if I can categorize it to fives. I would say that probably the biggest thing to avoid is – refined carbohydrates refined carbohydrates are really you know
0: like what are the where, where do we see refined carbohydrates the most is that cereals is that bread yes that-
1: cereals breads um most of the time i mean not all breads have have them but like you know a lot of the 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 white breads and stuff uh white flour like in pizza you know um Gosh. you know cookies yeah. cakes uh, 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 all that pretzels like uh, those things the, the, refined, the refined carbohydrates, there's really just no nutritional value. I mean, the whole point of food is to provide your body with, with the nutrients it needs to, to, you know, to not only be healthy now, but to also age healthy. And I think that people get really focused a lot on macronutrients like protein, carbohydrate, fat, and, and they, they don't realize that all these micronutrients that I mentioned, there's 40 that you have to get from your diet. You know, like those are important. These things are, they're what are called cofactors for enzymes that are running your metabolism, enzymes that are producing neurotransmitters in your brain. So your brain can function. And, you know, if you don't get enough like magnesium, you know, magnesium is found at the center of a chlorophyll molecule. Chlorophylls oh. what give plants their green color. Yeah. So magnesium is very high in dark leafy greens. Almost half the country in the United States doesn't get enough magnesium from their food. There's been, you know, large nutritional surveys and stuff that have, that have shown that year after year. And the problem with magnesium is like, you know, you need it to make energy. You need it to make and use energy. Uh, but you also need it to repair damage, hmm. DNA damage. And so you can imagine uh, what happens if you're short in that, in that essential mineral. Your body might actually triage the mineral to the short-term thing, energy, making energy. If you can't make energy, you're going to die. So, of course, your body's going to say, any magnesium I have, it's going to go to that essential process. DNA repair, like that's, that's something that only matters in your fifth, sixth, seventh decade of life. Cancer crops up, right? Mm-hmm. So, who cares if that's not, you know, 100% optimally sure. working? Um, this, whole, this whole idea of sort of triaging micronutrients is called the triage theory, it was put forth by my mentor, Dr. Bruce Ames, and mm. he published a couple of p- papers with um, supporting evidence of that theory. But the theory is basically, um, and again, there's there there's some supporting evidence with a couple of micronutrients that basically these essential, you know, vitamins and minerals, if you're short in them, they're triaged to systems based on. Um, binding constants, for example, some minerals will bind tighter to some enzymes versus other ones. And so the ones that are binding tighter are the enzymes that are important for short term health to prevent you from dying, basically, mm. um, versus long term health. Things like repairing damaged DNA, which doesn't matter right now. You can't see DNA damage. You know, it's not something, uh, but it's happening, it's happening yeah. all the time. So I think micronutrients are really important. And the food that you're going to find micronutrients, foods that you're going to find them in are whole foods. You're going to find them in plants. You're going to find them in meats. Meats are a great source of micronutrients. Yeah. Organ meats are also a great source. Organ meats. a lot of people. Yeah, organ meats, like liver. That would be probably the mm-hmm. stuff that I know. It's, just, it's, it's really an acquired taste. I recently found um, – there's a, there's a company that I found will make – ground meat with a certain percentage of liver and kidney and
0: so it tastes better another
1: one it and, and if i make it if i put it like in a you know if i if i make like a chili or something like I can't
0: taste it You're just like, you are oh, like, can't taste it and yeah. so i'm getting
1: i'm getting you know some of the organ meats which is kind of fun as oh well oh my
0: gosh i remember when i went to uh my first time i went to mexico city it was 2000 and uh 2008, 2008, early 2008, I was wearing a full-arm cast. So I'm already 6'4", gringo, white guy in the middle of Mexico. I'm a foot taller than everyone in Mexico City. I'm wearing this cast because I had surgery on my wrist. I broke my wrist. I did a bone graft from my hip to my wrist, playing arena football. That's so how I got injured. And I went to Mexico City. I stayed in a $7 a day hostel right near the center of Mexico City. And I said to myself, you know what? I have the palate of a 7-year-old, but I'm going to be adventurous on this trip. I'm gonna try things, I'm gonna expand my horizons, and I'm just gonna say yes to foods. And there was one point I went to a Lucha Libre match, a lucha door match, which is like the, the wrestling of Mexico, right? Where they wear masks and they wrestle. And outside of this wrestling match, I went to watch as a fan, I went outside because uh, Nacho Libre had come out right before this, so I became familiar of the sport. It's a movie, Jack Black, fun movie. And there was all these uh, street carts of food outside of this match. And I said, you know what? Give me everything to this one guy. And he started saying, I was like, what is this, this, this? And he was saying all these things. It, and I heard him say cortisone, which is heart. And I was like, oh, that's the heart. And then one was a tongue and one was the liver and this and this. And I said, throw it all in there. And so he made me a taco with all of it. And it's probably because it was street meat. It wasn't that healthy. I was sick for the next three days. But uh, I'm always weary of that stuff. So make sure you get organic, <laughs> clean meats when you do it.
1: Okay, so you're kind of reminding me. Um, I went to Japan a couple of years ago, and same deal. Like my, my husband and I went to this uh, sushi place, and oh, no. and, the, and the, the, the chef, there was no English, and there was just stuff on the menu, and we just got it. And apparently it was like tongue and all sorts of – Oh, no. And, and this is – I think it was – Raw? think it was um no it was slightly cooked oh yeah it was oh, slightly man. cooked but there was another sushi place we went to and and they they if you didn't it was like at this famous fish market I forgot the name of it already because mm-hmm. I didn't have my blueberries this morning but basically uh if you don't speak Japanese you get the one for all sushi menu because oh yeah yeah it, like, yeah and so we went there and so we you know of course didn't speak Japanese and so we got whatever they gave us and it like had I think it was like turtle or something, and I was just so sad because oh, I love turtles. No. And I didn't want to eat the turtle. Anyways, so.
0: Oh man. <laughs> okay, so the foods, <laughs> the foods we're here. We should not be eating cereal, breads, pizzas, cookies, cakes, anything with refined carbs, refined sugars. No, no. That's just probably just the the biggest no. thing
1: to cut out. I think cutting that out, if people could cut that out, you know, the sweetened sugar sweetened beverages. Huge. All that stuff. I mean,
0: what are, the, what are the things that are super healthy marketed-wise? I mean, beyond cereals, breads, and pizza, which they say they try to make them sound healthy, but the things that might seem healthier that we shouldn't be eating. Are there certain fruits and vegetables or other things that maybe you're like, you know what, these actually hurt the body, than help them.
1: Well, I, see, I think I haven't seen any research – showing that fruits and vegetables hurt the body. But I, there are fruits, you know, I've been wearing my glucose continuous glucose monitor. There are fruits that I can tell you for sure raise my postprandial blood glucose levels insanely high and still leave me hungry and unsatiated. And that would be grapes. Really? Grapes are like, there. so there was this one time we were, I was traveling and my son was like, I don't know, he it was, he was less than one. And I was trying to get him a fruit cup with, he had some cantaloupe, you know, some, cause he was still eating, he was eating solid, solid foods at that point, but grapes are a choking hazard. And so like the grapes, <laughs> I'm like, oh no, no, let me get it. And I was like eating the grapes out of the, you know, out of the little fruit cup real quick because I didn't want him to like, you know, have the even potential uh-huh. of grabbing them. And my blood glucose levels just rose so high. I mean, I, 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 I it was insane. So then I tested it again um, and same thing, tested it again, same thing. So I would say does it
0: have to do with DNA your DNA or would it be different for someone else's DNA or genes I think
1: it just has has to do with the the sugar the ratio of sugar to fiber so one of the things that's really consistent with lowering the postprandial glucose response is fiber more fiber um, and, and that was actually shown in that study that I, m- I mentioned the Wasteman Institute study with 800 people. Mm. One thing that was consistent throughout that was that high fiber did slow the glucose response, but. So if you had
0: a little bit, if you had like some almond butter by itself, the glucose levels would shoot up. But if you had almond butter with, uh, uh, I don't know, some fiber, it well, might act- go down.
1: Actually, what's really interesting is that you bring up another important point, uh, interesting point. Um, almond butter typically doesn't have a lot of sugar unless it's added sugar. I mean, so so I, I get or, almond. Butter. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and
1: you can you can have a little bit in there, and it actually won't really raise your blood glucose levels, particularly because protein also seems to mm. to blunt some of that. But what's interesting is there's been some studies, and I've tested this myself. If I eat like protein or fiber, and you eat it like 10 minutes before you are going to eat, uh, let's say, some grapes, or in someone else's case, like you, who's maybe eating a, <laughs> a cookie cake. or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> a whole so, cake. No. So um, it actually lowers the the blood glucose levels. It lowers the postprandial blood glucose levels of protein. This has been shown in a couple of studies in people with type 2 diabetes.
0: So if I eat a cake for dinner by itself, my glucose levels are going to go up. If I have meat, fiber, and then 10 minutes later, have a little bit of gelato or a little bit of tiramisu or something, you know, a it's little- It's better
1: like, than the tiramisu. Yeah, it's better than tiram- it by itself. That probably is why, I mean, humans probably notice that's why dessert comes after the meal, right? Oh,
0: man, I just, I just eat dessert for <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner growing up, you know? Um, okay, this is fascinating. So no grapes.
1: Yeah, so if you're talking about the so-called healthy foods, you know, I think, you know, I think that there's some people also- can have a big, you know, a bowl of oatmeal with a bunch of, you know, stuff in it, and they may have a, a higher blood glucose response. That also really, I think, does depend a lot on people's exercise routines. Mm-hmm. Like I've noticed in myself, that if I if I go out for a run, bowl of oatmeal doesn't really affect me as much as if I don't. You know, so
0: you talk. We we're talking about health in general here, but we're talking about the brain and food connection. Right now in the world, it seems like mental health and depression is a hot topic. It's something a lot of people are talking about. They're having mental health challenges, depression challenges. And I'm sure there's many factors to this. Social media, comparison, bad foods, a lack of exercise, a lack of sleep, anxiety, up all night, environment, lack of purpose, lack of... There's a lot of social factors probably that tie into mental health challenges. How important is food by itself in relating to minimizing depression, social anxiety and mental health.
1: I think food is extremely important because it's directly linked to obesity. Obesity itself causes low-grade inflammation. And foods that are really high, particularly when you combine a high saturated fat with a high refined sugar, so let's say you're eating your you're drinking your glass of milk with your cookie. Like that's the worst because you're getting the saturated fat and the sugar. That's my whole <laughs> job. And um, and that's been shown to cause a very high what's called postprandial inflammatory response. So we've been talking about postprandial glucose response, which is after you eat. So postprandial, there's a inflammatory response that also occurs um, after after eating, and um, inflammation itself has been shown to. Inflammatory molecules cross the blood-brain barrier, and they they have they play a role in in basically depressing dopamine signaling and serotonin and all sorts of uh, you know affecting neurotransmitters uh, and brain function. And there's been studies directly showing that if you inject a person um, with an inflammatory cytokine, it causes depressive symptoms versus really? are injected with saline.
0: Yes. So the more it's- inflammation we have in the body, it increases depression.
1: In- exactly. Inflammation. We used to think, again, the brain was separate from the body and that you know, the immune system and, and all that didn't, didn't you know, affect the brain. Turns out that was all wrong, absolutely wrong. And these inflammatory mediators do get into the brain and they get into the brain and they change, you know, they're changing the, the firing of certain neurotransmitters and things like that. They're also activating the resident immune cells in the brain called microglia, astrocytes, um, microglia a type of astrocyte. And, um, you know, that, that also is linked to, to depression. And, um, so Mm. we, we put out a little short video on this on an animated video, actually on depression, inflammation and depression, and talk about a lot of the studies, uh, because it's something I don't think people realize that the food you eat and not only the food you eat, your lifestyle, you know, being obese and overweight, being sedentary, being sedentary, you know, exercise is one of the best anti-inflammatory medicines you can get, period. And it also happens to be one of the, you know, best lifestyle, um, remedies for depression as well. And I mean, randomized controlled trials showing that all sorts of evidence. So, um, is this
0: any type of exercise or are you a HIIT training, a cardio, a 30 minutes, 60 minutes? What's your opinion?
1: Well, there's been, there's been studies looking at, you know, I, I would say the large body of evidence seems to show aerobic exercise is really important um, with, with respect to depression. Um, and, and that is because uh, aerobic exercise leads to increases in what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, uh, BDNF as it's called. It's basically um, a growth factor that's produced. You can after just 20 minutes of a moderate intensity workout, you can increase your level. You can find levels increase by like up to 30% in plasma. It crosses into the brain, and in the brain, um, it does a lot of things. Not only does it it do what IGF one does, it it actually grows new neurons. It helps you grow new neurons, and it helps um, your neurons survive. So it plays an important role in preventing brain aging. But something else very unique that it does, it plays a role in what's called neuroplasticity. Yeah. Neuroplasticity is like. Your brain's ability to adapt to stressful conditions, you know, I mean, this is what children can do pretty, pretty good. Um, As you get older, neuroplasticity goes down, as does everything, but neuroplasticity is important for for being able to cope with stress, like Uh the stress of a pandemic, for example. You know, more neuroplasticity helps with those stressful divorce people are going through, you know, or losing your job. Um, lots of lots of stressful things, but 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 neuroplasticity helps the brain cope with that, and brain derived neurotrophic factor helps increase neuroplasticity, which decreases with age. So um, again, aerobic exercise was important, but you know there's been studies linking strength training to um, lower depression rates as well.
0: Yeah, any so, type of exercise will help.
1: I, exactly, I do, but I really think that aerobic, there is a a place for aerobic with respect to the BDNF, the brain drive neurotrophic.
0: I always tell people that every day I try to put myself through some type of physical pain that makes me feel discomfort, whether that's sweating for 10 minutes or a two-hour workout or playing basketball, hiking, whatever. I try to put my mind and body through something where I'm like, gosh, I don't want to do this. But by putting myself through pain, controlled pain, it sets me up to be more under control when there is chaos and pain. Right. I think that's the the key we should get to is like controlled pain, healthy pain so that you're not out of control when there is chaos and pain in the world.
1: What you're describing, um, scientists often refer to uh, as hormesis and that is basically a little bit of stress on the body, like exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, because our body tries to maintain home- what's called homeostasis, um, a little bit of stress will cause our body to respond to that stress with a lot of anti-stress, right. anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, mm. growing new brain cells, any- all these beneficial things. So wow. a little bit of stress gives you a lot of good stuff, right? Interesting. Whereas low-grade chronic stress all the time, it, it doesn't do anything. You're, not, you're right. not getting that. You're not getting that powerful. Okay.
0: Yeah, this is power. This is amazing. I'm going to say something that I hope I don't offend anyone when I say it, that I am all about self-love, self-care, loving yourself for who you are, accepting yourself for where you're at in your life, physically, emotionally, environment, financially, all that. The more I hear you talk about this, The quote unquote self-love movement of accept who you are and accept where you're at with your body and what you eat and it's okay to eat whatever you want, just love yourself for who you are. Is that self-love mentality, that specific type of mentality, killing people and hurting them if they aren't willing to adapt a, no, it's not okay to continue to eat whatever you want all the time and just love yourself and accept yourself for who you are. You have to make sure you arm your body and your mind and your health with the nutrients, the tools, the exercise, in order to decrease depression and increase happiness.
1: I I think that there's the you know absolutely if you're going to just eat what you want and accept being obese um, that you will you'll be causing yourself more harm and both physically and mentally and um and, and that also probably affects your loved ones as well you you know that care about you or perhaps that you're interacting with, and you're in a terrible mood, and so you know when your neighbor's happy, you're happy right you know so I think that there's, there's part of this movement, I think there's a fine balance between you, you don't want to have your expectations so high that you can never be happy.
0: Yeah, right? and I'm never going to look like, perfect, and someone's always skinnier than me, and I'm, I'm never going to have
1: look. blue eyes. I'm never, yeah. I'm never, you know, so if I'm always like, well, only people with blue eyes are the prettiest, like, then I'll never be happy. So, like, that's an unreasonable expectation, right, in my mind. So, I mean, there are things where, you know, like, I'm never going to be a billionaire. And if that if that's all I wanted in life to be happy, I'll never be happy. So there are things I think that you can. There, there's a certain balance between. I and mean, you want your expectations to be high in in a way. You want to always aim for what you you know aim aim for the stars in a way and, and and try to like work hard to get there. But there is sort of there are certain things yeah. that you know you do have to lower. Like, but
0: uh, sorry, go ahead. I don't want to. Yeah, but
1: 12. but with but with, so so what I'm trying to say is I think that self love movement came from somewhere right? I think there was there was something to that, right? But I think it sort of spiraled out of control. And and um, what what's happened now is you're saying, well, accept things that I don't want to change mm. rather than you can. Because you can change that. You can lose weight. You can um, eat different foods and get Make healthier. Make different decisions. Yeah. It might and be – yeah,
0: I mean – sorry, I want to keep on. to cut be, off. Yeah, So ahead. it's
1: definitely – look, like with, with, with people that are eating refined sugar, people that are drinking these sugar sweetened beverages, you know, and there's, there's a lot of people, maybe not so many people listening to the podcast or watching it, but, um, there are people that do. And, you know, there's been studies that have shown refined sugar acts on the reward pathway in the brain, dopamine pathway in a very similar manner to controlled substances, um, Drugs like nicotine, yes. methamphetamine, yep. not to the same degree, but they're acting on the same systems and they're It increases the a
0: feel good hormone it when does. you take it for the moment, but then it makes you decline afterwards and crash, right?
1: It does. And, you know, I, I think the important point to realize with that is that. When you take that away when you stop what happens is there is a withdrawal and it's been shown at least with for example with nicotine studies that so basically what happens you know your 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 dopamine's getting constantly fired 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 and so you're what's called dopamine receptors um, which basically the dopamine axon to f- make you feel good those start to decrease because your your neurons are going oh well i have so much of this around i don't need so many of the receptors so when you take away that thing that's causing the dopamine all the time to go away You have fewer receptors and now you don't feel as much. I mean, it's just really bad. You're not feeling any amount of dopamine, right? But it's been shown that that sort of normalizes within three months. Huh. And three months is a long time, but it's actually not that long.
0: Of cutting, of cutting out the sugar, you mean? Of like Well, cutting. this
1: has been shown with nicotine. I'm just drawing gotcha, a parallel. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm yeah, drawing yeah. a parallel saying, look, it's not going to be easy the first month. It's, 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 not be it's easy so to
0: hard. Start. It's so it's hard. It's not going to be
1: easy the first month. It may not be easy the second month, but it's going to get easier. And it's not only is it going to get easier, you're going to be happier.
0: Your body's going to regulate itself. The hormones are going to regulate, right? Things are going to self-regulate.
1: Yeah, things start to, to get back to normal. Exactly. It's and, very
0: challenging. Challenging, but it's necessary to get healthier and happier, right?
1: It is. I I don't think people realize that you know depression. It's not. It's not just a genetic disorder. It's not just something that can't be fixed, ever. Uh, no, in some cases, you know, there there are you know there are definitely genetic cases of depression. I'm not saying that that's not the case. But can you heal but,
0: depression through food and nutrition and exercise? Well, there
1: have been studies that have shown that exercise can be a treatment for depression. And there have been studies that shown um, uh, changing someone's diet can also improve depression, depressive scores. Um, And particularly the the combined two uh, is even more robust, which Mm. makes sense. Um, You know, so I think there's, there's something for people to realize people that are maybe eating a, a not so healthy diet, people that are overweight, you know, overweight, definitely obese, And um, if they if they do have depression, that there 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 very well could be a link between you know between the the diet, the the lifestyle, the obesity. You know you know fat cells itself they also increase they they produce inflammatory cytokines. Hmm. So independent of the whole eating the diet and the postprandial inflammatory response, just having fat, like particularly visceral fat, like around your organs and stuff, like this stuff this stuff is. Causing low-grade inflammation. And do you know Pretty, what low-grade yeah. inflammation is? What is it, it means like? that you're basically activating your immune cells a little bit all the time. And activated immune cells require a ton of energy. So you're taking energy away from your brain from defending from, itself. Yeah. From from just just having you know having a great day. From I mean mm, energy. So, so just having so energy. energy. It's like yeah. a sink exactly. Just having energy. It's a sink, low-grade inflammation. I mean, you were telling me this, you, you know, we were chatting a little bit earlier about how you were eating this terrible diet back when you were yes. doing your arena football and you were always tired.
0: Always tired.
1: Low-grade inflammation, it, it's an energy sink because it requires so much energy to activate your immune cells. And there's only oh. so much energy. It's like a triage, right? It's triaging yeah. there. It's taking so, us somewhere
0: else, and it takes you away from your mission, from your vision of your life, from your career, from your energy with your family, your friends. Yeah, you have to have ones.
1: energy. I mean, it takes motivation to want to go to the gym. It takes yes. motivation also to want to, to like do stuff or to talk to people. To you know.
0: Is there a genetic thing that or DNA thing that holds someone back from losing that weight if they've tried for years, or is this? still, uh, you know, they're just lacking the discipline. What, what is that?
1: There's absolutely many genes that regulate obesity and, and, and my, like, I'll, I'll just tell you my mother-in-law, she is also, um, little, she's not, you're not obese. She's, you know, had has in the past had an overweight problem and has tried, I mean, she's the kind of person that tries and goes all in and she has tried every diet, just everything, and just nothing seemed to work. And um, so I, I personally know people like – so I mean – But how does there's... someone
0: like that, if they have tried, try, try, and it's just like, you know what? I'm beating myself up. The diets I'm trying, the exercise is not working. What do they need to shift? Well, to I do to... – so you
1: asked about genetics, and that it, it, there is a really important role for genetics as well. But I think that um, in order to know that, you're going to you're gonna have to measure – biomarkers in your blood. So you're going to have to measure lipids like your LDL cholesterol, different particle sizes of those cholesterol, inflammatory biomarkers like high sensitivity reactive protein, your triglycerides, your HbA1c, which is a long-term measure of your long-term wow. blood glucose levels. Measure those things. And also you can get a genetic test. There's a variety of genetic testing services out there, 23andMe, DNA, And and basically... Uh, so I I do have a uh, genetic report that basically we look exclusively um, or looking at genes that are affecting, basically interacting with diet. And there's a lot of genes. So people that are eating a high-protein diet, um, some people with a certain SNP, which is a one change in one nucleotide of DNA in a gene, basically can gain more weight. Uh, And the opposite is true, like I mentioned, or eating the ratio of... Saturated fat to polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats So saturated fats found in foods like dairy, red meat, fatty cuts of red meat, polyunsaturated fats found in fish, monounsaturated fat is found in olive oil, olives, you know, nuts. So these things like the, even the ratio of those things can affect, depending on someone's genetics, their ability to, to gain or lose weight. But can and, you and and more so, like even people so- there's some people have it where they eat a high carbohydrate diet and uh-huh. they gain more weight,
0: so it's not as simple as what I'm hearing you say as just eat less calories a day and you should lose weight not like always if you, if you it- suppress the calorie intake, you're gonna burn more and eventually you're gonna burn you know
1: I think that's the one thing that's pretty tried and true is that your caloric restriction. Most of the time, people will, you know, lose weight.
0: Lose weight, gotcha, they will. okay.
1: But, you know, the question is, how sustainable is that? You know, so you, maybe, maybe you, what you would need to do, you know, the other thing is that a lot of times, obesity, there's, there's a dysregulation in hormones. Mm-hmm. Hormones like insulin, leptin is another big one. Yeah. And you have to reset those hormones in order to, like, have a normal biology.
0: Yes. And
1: sometimes resetting those hormones takes a reset that's kind of a strong stressor, like, like a long fast, mm-hmm. a long fast, you know, Gosh. where you're basically, you're basically resetting those things. And, and that's what did it for my mother-in-law. So mm. that was my long story. She did a long,
0: did a long fast and helped reset.
1: A couple of them. So she did, you know, now, now, by the way, you know, not eating for, when I say a long fast, typically intermittent fasting is, is anything less than 48 hours. hmm Uh, A longer fast would be longer than 48 hours. Three
0: three plus days.
1: Yeah. Now she did the first time she did a three day, she started out by doing um, sort of a a caloric restriction, low calorie diet to kind of get her into it. And then she did a three day fast where she didn't eat anything, a little bit of salt. She would take a little bit of salt in and drink some water. And then she did four days. Um, And she did this like, you know, separated by like a month. And that reset her metabolism. And all of a sudden, she started losing weight, you know? Wow. Um, and this has also been the case for a few a few other friends of mine that particularly one that's, that was morbidly obese and he lost like 180 pounds.
0: Oh my gosh. The one question I want to uh, finish with before I ask you the final uh, two questions I ask everyone is the main vitamins and supplements you feel like every human being should be taking every single day. Like what are the supplements that you take and you recommend for us? If we could take three to five, Every day, whether eating great food or bad food, what would you recommend?
1: I will tell you there are a few supplements that that I think are important, and I think the evidence shows are important, and that I take every day. The first is vitamin D, and you know vitamin D actually is, it gets converted into a steroid hormone, so mm. it's a hormone, not just a vitamin. It's a hormone, and it <laughs> regulates like five percent of the protein encoding human genome. That's a lot. 5% genes, 5% of all your genes is vitamin D, need vitamin D. Wow. To do it's thing. Right. It's a lot. You, right? Is there,
0: is there, can you overdose on vitamin D?
1: Well, here's the thing with vitamin D and the reason I, and the reason I think it's so important because, um, you can make it from the sun and you have exposure to UVB radiation. You make vitamin D3 in your skin, but you need the UVB radiation to do that. And UVB radiation,
0: Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal? To give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Now, you know how much I emphasize the power of teams for your business. And ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. Their smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. My company, Greatness Media, is currently hiring and in my opinion, finding the right team is one of the most important steps in setting your business up for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I'm grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help with my growing team. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
1: The Asian, certain times of the year in certain parts of the of the world, you know, Northern Latitudes doesn't reach the atmosphere, you know, five to six months out of the year, long time, you know, maybe, maybe five months, I don't know, fall, winter, you know. So people in Northern Latitudes, the way they're adapted to that is they t- they typically have fair skin because, Melanin, which is pigment that helps you give, gives your skin pigment and um, pigment protects you from the burning rays of the sun. It protects you from getting skin cancer from, you know, basically Um, people, people that are living closer to the equators and Southern regions. So you have like... South, South Asia, South India, uh, Africa. Brazil. They have more Brazil, exactly South mm-hmm. Brazil. They have more melanin, right? They have darker skin, which is great when you're close to the equator and you're in the sun all the time, right? Because you can make vitamin D. But when you take a person with that darker skin pigmentation and you move them, as now we're a global country, right? People, people live from all over the, the world live in the United States. They live in a place in like Minnesota or Washington yeah. state or New York. They're gonna be severely vitamin D deficient. Wow. Because, you know, the, they're not getting that UVB radiation.
0: All Wisconsin. those exchange students from Brazil going to Wisconsin, make sure you've got your vitamin D supplement. But
1: here's the thing. of the entire United States population, everyone included, has what's called insufficient vitamin D levels. So not just people with dark skin, everyone. And that's because we stay indoors now. We've got our computers. We've got, you know offices. We're not out farming like we used to. And we wear sunscreen when we are out. Sunscreen blocks UVB radiation to protect us from the burning rays of the sun. So the bottom line is most people aren't getting enough vitamin D. You asked, can you take can you take too much vitamin D? Well, vitamin D is uh, fat soluble. It is stored in fat. There have been upper limits. So the National the Nutrition Board of the Institute of Medicine set the tolerable upper intake at 4,000 IUs a day. And uh, But there's been studies showing that 10,000 I use today still has no toxicity effects. Um, mm-hmm. And that's even long-term for se- several years. Some people do require a higher vitamin D dose, particularly people that are more deficient. The only way you're going to know is to get a blood test. Mm-hmm. Getting a blood test is really important. Yeah, Blood mm-hmm. levels between 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter are ideal, according to all cause mortality studies and things like that. But um, okay, I, th- I think that, but- and also people have SNPs, by the way, SNPs, meaning genes that regulate vitamin D production. So I've had now five friends of mine that have SNPs they've found out from using our genetic report because they were supplementing with five, seven thousand IU's of vitamin D a day and they were still deficient and couldn't Mm, figure out. My goodness. And so people, I know it's one of those things. And you wouldn't. And see, it's important to get a blood test. You would never know. You're taking, let's say, you're taking your your five thousand I use a day supplement and you never get a blood test, you're gonna think you're fine. So blood tests is really important. It's really important. You can order them at home, you know, mm-hmm. people don't want to go to the doctor's office you can order them at
0: home. Right, right, right. So, so I mean should D. we should we be I mean with the, uh, the with the times that there are right now, staying inside is killing us then, even though we're supposed to stay inside and stay safe. So you're essentially- opening a whole
1: can of worms because <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's no evidence, direct yet evidence yet that vitamin D helps prevent or treat COVID-19. Zero evidence of that. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is that there is mounting evidence that severe cases of COVID-19, people that are in ICUs, on ventilators, people that have severe cases, uh-huh. 98% of the severe cases, people are vitamin D deficient. Oh my gosh. In, in, in multiple studies in Philippines, Indonesia, New Orleans, whereas you get like 4% of people with, with mild, or sorry, severe cases are vitamin D sufficient. Uh-huh. And- Multiple studies have been showing this and there's a really important mechanistic link here. First of all, we know from genetic studies, people that are genetically low in vitamin D because of like some of those SNPs I mentioned, if you look at those SNPs itself and look at those people's people that have those SNPs, we know they're genetically prone to low levels of vitamin D. And the only thing you look at is their genetics they are they have a higher death rate from respiratory and tract infections than people without those SNPs. And this is a, a I love these studies because it's called it's called Mendelian randomization. The reason I love it is because there's all sorts of studies showing that low vitamin D levels also increases the risk of x y and z sure, but sure. low vitamin d levels means you're out in the sun less you're maybe you're less physically active you're, you know so there's all these confounding factors <laughs> yeah. but when you just take the gene and you group that person based on their gene only not on their vitamin d levels and it's a way of of randomizing them in a way because there's no way that there's all these confounding factors with the genetics right yeah so there's also randomized control trials there's 25 different randomized control trials that were all and analyzed together showing that vitamin d supplementation Decreases respiratory tract infections by fifty percent in people that are deficient, and by ten percent in people that already have sufficient levels but still take a supplement. All right, that's not COVID nineteen. Again, there's that's no just, evidence. Yeah. This is not. I, I that this needs to be tested. This is just uh,
0: good health practice to have vitamin D. No it matter. is.
1: I personally think that um, there is a strong possibility, and this is a hypothesis, that vitamin D levels um, may play a role in the severity of COVID nineteen. It's not going to stop you from getting. COVID-19. I think it may play a role in the severity of it and, um, meaning how your body responds to it.
0: How long Um, you how long it takes you to heal. How, how how,
1: how severe of a case you have. Is it like a a mild case of the, of a cold or a mild flu, or is it something that's going to take you into the ICU? Wow. I think that's a hypothesis that needs to be tested, but based on, um, some of the evidence I talked about, and based on the fact that it, what's really known is that you know vitamin D is important for immune function in so many respects because um, of the you know it, there's vitamin D receptors on many different immune cells, and it plays a role an important role in many different immune functions. But in addition to that, the way the this the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that causes COVID-19 illness, the way it gets into a cell is through a receptor called the ACE-2 receptor. The ACE-2 receptor. ACE2 receptor also regulates a lot of things, it regulates blood pressure, fluid retention, you know, kidney function. Um, it turns out that when the virus binds to that receptor and gets into the cell, it what's it's what called down regulates that receptor. We talked about that before with dopamine. Down regulates it means it makes fewer, it takes that receptor and pulls it inside. And so there's fewer of those receptors on the cell surface to do its job. Mm. And this was shown with SARS one, SARS CoV one, there, which caused the original SARS outbreak back in two thousand three. That that was shown to increase disease severity. Having less of ACE two, believe it or not, the the way that this thing gets into this into the cells, the ACE two is the very thing that's needed to prevent serious hmm. lung injury. There's there's tons of animal studies showing that lung injury itself requires ACE two, but ACE two gets decreased because lung injury decreases. It's one of the ways that causes acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, acute lung injury. So having ACE2 protects you. And what does vitamin D do? Well, animal studies have shown, rodent studies have shown, if you give an animal vitamin D and cause acute lung injury, the the ACE2 levels go up and it protects them from the acute lung injury. Uh, ACE2 levels don't go up to animals that were given vitamin D but didn't have a lung injury. So in other words, the lung injury itself causes ACE2 to go down, but the vitamin D made it go back up. So what vitamin D is doing is maintaining homeostasis. Vitamin D is not a drug. It's not going to just increase ACE2 full stop in you know, someone that doesn't have lower levels, at least according to rodent studies. The bottom line here is I think that you know emerging evidence suggests there is possibly a role for vitamin D in modulating disease severity. I know there are randomized control trials that are underway to test this. It's Currently still a hypothesis, but I do think it is very, most people are getting insufficient vitamin D and particularly now, now it's probably even worse. Yeah, Elderly people I are day. more at risk people with darker skin, people with obesity is also because fat soluble, vitamin D is less bioavailable. So anyways, my point is that I think vitamin D is uh, important to take. Certainly people can talk to their health practitioners about it uh, in general and particularly now. Fish oil is another one. I'll I'll not ramble on as long. Fish oil is another one and uh, a multivitamin, I think. I think those are like the basic port ones. Fish oil, I think, there's there's a variety of brands out there. You want to get a high quality one. Fish oil is very prone to oxidation. So you wanna you wanna get a higher quality one and keep it in the refrigerator. And there's mm. there's sites out there like Labdoor that have uh third party tested oxidate you know, different oxidative markers in yeah, fish yeah. oil brands. So you can look at those sites to find a good a good brand. Sure.
0: Okay. This is fascinating. And I love listening to your show, uh, Found My Fitness. People can listen to it on iTunes, Apple, Spotify, all the places. Also foundmyfitness.com. You have a premium section for more where you do a Q&A coaching type of answering questions for people, right?
1: I do. Yeah. So we found my fitness, all one word. Yeah. iTunes also on YouTube. I do have a premium where I don't do ads or um, sponsors, mm-hmm. but I do have a, we are um, a premium subscription where people can, they get sort of perks by supporting us. Sure, and sure. one of those perks is a, a monthly Q and do. So they submit questions. It's live, but if you don't mm-hmm. want it live, you also get access to it on YouTube and also a private podcast yeah, feed as well. I love it.
0: Yeah. You've got some incredible stuff on your podcast. I love listening to it and diving in on your research. So everyone should go listen there. If you Want. again if you want to convince uh ronda to come back on uh, at some point in the future whether it's this year or next year to talk about you know since i have the biological age of a seven-year-old with a curiosity mind if you want to hear from my perspective on fasting anti-aging longevity then make sure to to tag uh tag her on instagram and twitter and all those places when you're listening to this so she uh maybe will come back on in the future where else can we follow you where do you hang out the most on social media
1: um i twitter instagram found my fitness all one word and I'm also on Facebook and, uh, YouTube, YouTube is, is, is my YouTube channel called my fitness. Amazing. YouTube. That's it. Amazing. That's all this, the
0: old this, places. Is, this is uh, the final couple of questions that I ask everyone at the end of my interviews. Uh, this is called the three truths. So I'd like you to imagine a hypothetical question that you're as old as you want to be. You've figured out the longevity code. You're 300 years old. You're 120, however old you want to be. But eventually you got to turn the lights off and go to the next place after you, you leave this earth. You gotta go at some point. And uh, you've gotten to achieve every dream that you have. Rhonda, you have changed the world, you've cured cancer, whatever it is the dreams are, you've done it, you've grown up, you've seen your family grow up and have an amazing life. And for whatever reason, all of your work, materials, your research, your findings, your uh, podcast videos, they all have to go with you to the next place. So no one has access to any more of your content. Any of your research, it's all gone for whatever reason. Hypothetical question. And you could share three things you know to be true with the world before you go. And these would be the only three things that people to have to remember you by and three lessons you would share with the world, three important things they should do. What would you say are your three truths?
1: Oh, wow. I would say um, I would definitely there. – there is a, a low-hanging fruit to be happy, and and that low-hanging fruit is – um, accomplished through making sure your body has the right micronutrients, exercise. I think that uh, there's a low-hanging fruit. The low-hanging fruit is is the main thing. I would I would probably the the common theme. The low-hanging fruit to uh, living longer also is is basically through trying to trying to find and and, and get the right micronutrients from your food. And you, when you do that, you end up eating healthier. Like because there's no micronutrients in refined foods, you know, that's going to help your body. I think help your body be healthier as well. And then I think lastly, I would say um, to just enjoy the things that you love doing. I mean, being happy is, it's so important, you know, to take time and enjoy those things for sure.
0: I love it. Back to the basics. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Before I ask the final question, I want to acknowledge you Rhonda for just being an incredible source of helpful wisdom and knowledge in a time and in a, a place where there's so much noise, you bring peace, clarity, found research, and uh, you do it with such a uh, grace and, and wisdom and joy and happiness. So I'm just acknowledging you for constantly showing up every day, being a mom, being a wife, taking care of yourself, being a human guinea pig so that that we can all learn how to become happier, healthier as well. And I just really appreciate all the work you do for all of us. It's, it's really helpful. So I thank you for that. My final question for you is what is your definition of greatness?
1: My definition of greatness. Oh, I think my definition of greatness is honesty. I think that, that is the most important honesty, just pure honesty, period.
0: Period. I love Period. it. Yeah. Doctor Rhonda Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Very grateful.
1: Thank you. Thank you for all the flattering words, too. Lewis. It was it was really fun chatting with you.
0: My friend, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy it, make sure to share this with a friend because sharing is what greatness is all about. And you can get all of Rhonda's tips for a healthier life by searching "Found My Fitness" all one word. And she's got an amazing podcast on apple Podcasts and spotify and video content on youtube as well and of course she's at found my fitness across all social platforms again thank you so much for taking the time to listen today i hope you got some insights on how you can improve your health and if you did just share this over on your social media post it on instagram or twitter facebook or text it with a friend over whatsapp or text and get this message out there the link to send people is lewishouse.com slash 967 or just copy and paste the link on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now and share it with your friends. Of course, mental health is just as important as physical health. So if you haven't yet listened to my interview last week with the spiritual visionary Sadhguru, go listen to it right now. I'm telling you, it will change your life. And let's stay connected over text message. That's right. You can send me a text I'm posting inspirational text messages to you every single week. All you need to do is text the word podcast to 614-350-3960, and I'll be able to send you messages over there. I'm also posting regular content over on TikTok, stuff you don't see anywhere else on social media. Go check me out. I'm at Lewis if you're diving into the TikTok world as well right And I love this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, the first wealth is health. I want to remind you that no matter what problems you have in the world, none of those problems matter if you are under attack in your health, if you feel sick, if you can't move, if you've got some type of pain in your body or in your mind, that thing always becomes the main thing. So focus on health every single day. Do something to help improve your physical and mental and emotional health. And that way you'll have more energy to take on the challenges and take on your dreams of life every single day. I want to remind you how much you matter, how much I appreciate you, how much you are loved in the world. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.